0: season of Best Girl Grip. I am your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. This week's guest is Moss Barkley, an executive producer for TV at Seesaw Films, whose shows include Slow Horses and The Essex Serpent on Apple TV, Heartstopper on Netflix, and The North Water on BBC iPlayer. Moss started her career working for filmmaker Paul Greengrass before co-founding the new writing theatre festival Hightide. She was also an intern at Working Title and went on to hold positions at Big Talk Pictures and 16 Films before spending 10 years at Pulse Films where she led the company's expansion into scripted film and TV, developing Gangs of London for Sky AMC. We talk about how Paul Greengrass introduced her to the film industry, her love of stories and reading and how that led her towards development, demystifying what it means to be a head of development, her time at Pulse Films and how she helped to redefine what Pulse did or could do, and her shift towards television and what author TV looks like, as well as her work at Seesaw Films. This is episode 136 of Best Girl Grip. You recall the moment, or experience, or person that made you consider a career in film.
1: I had quite a sort of, I think, quite an unusual entry into the industry. That I mean, I, I read English at university and was sort of always interested in stories, but really didn't have a background or a sort of setup that suggested that film or TV was going to be a, a future career. I didn't really know what the what the roles were. And I was lucky when I was at university, I used to sort of earn money as a babysitter and was babysitting for a director who at the time had done some really interesting work but wasn't sort of as big as he is now. But I so I started looking after Paul Greengrass's children. And Paul and I got on very well and he was very, very kind to me and sort of introduced me into what I now sort of understand as the industry but I remember very distinctly working I'd been looking after his kids in the summer and then he said why don't you come into the office I've got some boxes box files that I need sorting out um, you can come and do that now that you know, you're not at university anymore and need to earn some money and so I would talk to Paul about his work and how he came into the industry and understood I remember him talking to me about what development was um, I didn't even know term. And and he, he talked about it from the perspective of having come from documentaries. And although I've never had any ambition to work in documentary, I think real stories and sort of real people have always been my sort of access point into all of the scripted work that I do. Um, it's not particularly by design, but I think it's how I ground the storytelling process in something that feels tangible and accessible to an audience as well. So I think Paul was definitely my gateway. I'd in the way that you do um, when you come out of university and, and you're sort of full of ambition and pluck. I set up a theatre festival called High Tide. And in doing that and sort of experience, and sort of the, the process of um, working with Paul and also setting up High Tide, I think writers and writing uh, as a sort of medium, I suddenly realised that I didn't, I knew I never wanted to write. I never had that ambition. Um, but I've always loved working creatively with others. And I think that, so I, I sort of understood that it was, there was a career in that and that was sort of my starting point.
0: That's incredible. I had not made the connection that you started high tide. And you know, it's still known as a theatre and a festival that kind of really embraces new writing and you know really leverages new playwrights, you know, into their careers. That's that's really amazing.
1: I may say this actually and I'm sort of reflecting on it now. One of my um, very dear friends at university um, uh, is, is now a director, Mary Nye, and I produced her short film. And it was her um, boyfriend at the time, Sam Hodges, um, who had the idea for High Tide. And he sort of convened us um, and said, "Would you guys be up for for doing this?" And the fact that it's in Suffolk is in no small part to, down to the fact that I, my my parents are from there, and um, that there is a sort of cultural heritage in in the county. But to as a point of difference, um, working in new writing in London felt very um, saturated, so it was distinguishing what we offered and also a sort of creating a, a space for writers and creators um, at the outset of their career to have um, kind of collaborative experience um, in putting something on that wasn't uh, under the same kind of pressure and gaze um, as it would have been had it been in London.
0: And I'd love to get a sense of, you know, from your conversations with Paul, what you understood development to be and what interested you about working in that realm, particularly?
1: I think from Paul, I understood that stories didn't come necessarily fully formed, that, that, that there was a great skill in how they were told. And he, I think, is particularly skilled in that. And I'd perhaps underestimated how much editorial nouns and sort of storytelling and dramatic mouse you need in order to um, extract a documentary story, which in principle is sort of fully formed and pre-exists. But how, how the telling of that story and some of the principles that um, I understood from him, I think I still sort of return to today, both editorially and creatively, but also sort of philosophically. I remember working, uh, I was doing, uh, working for, for what, is the director's union in the UK with Paul because he was, um, he had set that up and he wanted someone to, to work inside the sort of institution, um, which is now has now become Directors UK, or it became Directors UK whilst I was um, working there with him. Having a sort of career advice. Chat with him, and I remember saying, "Paul, I think I've identified that I want to be a producer. How do I be a producer?" He said, "There's a lot of talk about being a producer, but not, and and I think it's you know there's an arrogance and a a sort of vanity and a sort of, and also I think perhaps from a sort of academic background, you 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 pick out the the sort of end target and you're like, like how do I get there?'" And he said to me, "You need to really embrace the process, like get in with the the sort of bottom rungs and really enjoy that and embrace it and." worry less about where you're going and worry more about doing really good work and the rest will take take care of itself um, and I've always sort of held on to that um, he, he wrote an email to me which which I sort of refer to quite often even even now um, 20 years down the line it's still something that that principle of knowing every bit of the business and having respect as a, re- as a result of that I think is, is something that has enabled me to do work, work in the way that I have anyway I think it's it's something that the, the sort of embracing of the process and of the editorial process and the creative process is something that I love. And so, yes, it is about an end point and putting something on screen ultimately. But there is an enormous value and I really enjoy the journey to get to that point almost as much as I do about getting something out there. I think, you, you know, if you speak to anyone who has taken films to festivals or and even very, very successful ones when you are sort of basking in the glory, it's, it comes at the end of a very, very long journey. And if you don't enjoy that journey, then you will be, it will be a very disappointing experience um, working in this industry.
0: And is that guidance what led you into the working title graduate program, that idea of kind of being an intern and starting from scratch and kind of learning and working your way up? Is that kind of how that happened or was you know that not related at all, really?
1: I think it, it sort of is and isn't. And, and I'm, I hesitate to even acknowledge this um, because it doesn't necessarily re- reflect particularly well on me but I noticed um, the working title it, it wasn't sort of linked to Paul per se they were he was working there and I'm sure that had an impact on me getting the getting the role in in some respects but I applied for working title because they were the company making the most at the time. And it, I knew it would expose me at in sort of, in the fastest and um, at the sort of highest level of what the process is. I'd been working as a, I'd done a lot of ADing and running on, on uh, initially on Born Automatum. That was my first experience on set. And later sort of Wolfman and and really big universal movies, which I so gave me a very privileged um, experience of what working as a runner was. I had most of my job related to getting Sort of craft services for for various people. But I love that, but, but I wanted to see what. Ha- how what the process was up until that point like I loved being on set and I really enjoyed the sort of adrenaline and the kind of the speed and sort of immediacy of working on set but I didn't know how you how you landed there and I knew that would be um, a way to do that but the bit that reflects maybe quite badly on me at the time um, the action scheme uh, application form was only three questions and um, I was working nights and incredibly busy and the sort of longer application forms were quite overwhelming and so I did. the short one um and and it worked um and i think that's anything because it was a sort of much more concentrated expression of why i wanted to work in the industry rather than 1500 questions about sort of who i was and where i came from and what I think that was the other thing was that film hadn't, I hadn't. I wasn't sort of particularly film literate. I was, my parents didn't let me watch television. Um, we had one video player, which we had recordings from TV, but we. I, I didn't sort of, I wasn't that steeped in, in sort of literature, um, but I did really love stories and I've always really loved reading. And that was sort of my gateway, I think.
0: I'd love to get your perspective on the idea of embracing the journey, particularly, you know, when you are doing grunt work in quotation marks such as you know running about and you know going to craft services and getting people teas and coffees how do you kind of motivate yourself to like think that it's worthwhile or or just absorb your surroundings and absorb who you're privileged enough to kind of be rubbing shoulders with and maybe asking them questions like was that something that you always kind of were keeping in the back of your mind you know in terms of progressing or was it just very much about you know getting through the day?
1: No I mean I I genuinely it wasn't even a sort of a conscious act I genuinely loved and felt very lucky to be surrounded by the people that I was surrounded by whether that was the sort of people who were at the top of their game and very senior but also I think it's it's what keeps me in the industry today and it's what has always I've found most enjoyable is just the variety of people that you get to speak to and, the, and their different experiences and levels of what they're interested in when I was working on set I became very close to the car to there and he would me to and from set. Uh, I pretend that I didn't. Um, my car was in the garage, but I didn't have one. Uh, and he was <laughs> in the, i think sure he knew, <laughs> but I remember I could get out to Pinewood every day. And I just loved talking to him about his experience of, of what the set was and why he ended. He was uh, working you know, on film sets as opposed to in any other sort of craftsperson space. And I think that's, it's still true today. I think I, I, what I get editorially is an incredible opportunity to work in loads of different story spaces i you know but i these huge deep dives into worlds or into characters or into sort of spheres of um, drama that I would never. Uh, there are very few roles I think that al- allow you to to have quite such a range of sort of research experience, but also meeting brilliant, clever, insightful people, whether that's writers, directors, um, and creators, or beyond that. And I think this is where the sort of side comes in, or the true true stories interest comes in. So I just really like working with people who are very connected with the work that they do. And I think that that's something that I, or even when, when I was on set or when I was you know, making tea or printing things out or filing things, I just really liked the people that I worked with. And it felt as though film particularly um, and now TV collated a group of very clever, very interested, interesting people.
0: Yeah, I think that's so key to kind of, yeah, keep the people at the forefront as opposed to the glory. Um, I'm potentially condensing quite a few years here, but I'm very aware that we have a lot to get through. And I know that you were development coordinator at Big Talk and then you moved up to head of development at Unanimous less than three years later, which to my mind seems like quite, you know, an escalation, you know, quite quick. And I'd love to get your perspective on if that felt like a big, you know, challenge or leap at the time and, and how you went about positioning yourself or proving yourself, you know, in the development coordinator role and, and then how you proved yourself capable of managing a bigger slate as a head of development?
1: This is maybe a bit of a dis- demystifying. I mean, I was head of development, but it was only me. Yes, I was across a whole slate of our projects, but it was me and at the time, Katie Goodson-Thomas was was my boss, really. We managed things together. So again, I was sort of very lucky to work with someone who was very generous and imparted lots of insight and information and, and knowledge. I mean, it, it felt like a, a, a step, but probably not a leap. Um, Katie made a I may have been floundering I don't know what I saw I was very lucky in that I'd worked very big company like working title is huge like head of development at working title is a very very different thing to a head of development at a very small indie where there's three three people and so I think sometimes when you see those job titles um it's quite it can be quite sort of maybe not entirely a sort of reflection of, of what that person is necessarily doing or, or indeed the, the size of the company det- dictates what the scale of, of the slate that you're working on and the talent that you're working with but in terms of how to how I made that that jump I think part of it was having been exposed to very very experienced people doing those roles and working with writers and directors who were also very experienced and at the top of their game then when you take it into a slightly smaller sphere you're looking for being realistic you're unlikely to get access to the same level of talent you're not going to be at the top of the agents list to send material to or to have generals with writers and directors who are who are very well known so you have to work in a different way excavating ideas from maybe it's from material that has been overlooked or let go of or indeed just working with newer talent newer voices who who are not getting the opportunities at the more sort of established companies and that actually was something that I really enjoyed doing and and also we we partnered up sometimes as well and so I was able to work with more experienced people in in that sphere as well.
0: And as a head of development, kind of sticking with this theme of demystifying what you're actually doing on a day to day, I'd love to get a sense of how you go about defining and sourcing the types of projects that you think the company should be developing and and their remit or their kind of uh, house brand. Like, how do you go about pinpointing that and then finding the projects that will serve that mission?
1: I think it really varies depending on where you are. I remember when I started at Pulse, there was a, a real emphasis on trying to re-educate people about the material that Pulse was looking for, that the company was known for um, music videos and commercials and to a lesser extent, but, but still documentaries. And I think that there As a result, we were sent lots of material which you know we got countless sort of electronic music scripts about kids and DJs and Ibiza. And in some ways, I think our lives would have been much easier if we had just lent into the sort of heritage of the company. But I was working... For to Thomas who ran the company and, and Lucas who was my um, boss so as head of um, film and television who really wanted to separate the scripted side of the business um, and it was my sort of role to, to lead that and to redefine it as not being young kids who were just interested in music and that's sort of where Gangs of London came from and Thomas had optioned playstation game some years before and i remember very distinctly in the sort of first week or so of of being at the company and him giving me what is not a particularly prestigious game and saying "Come, we're going to turn this into a tv series and it took a lot of work and it wasn't all me it was very much with lucas as well but we conceived of a a sort of writing brief for creatives and we initially conceived of it as a film franchise not a tv series and it was when it went to gareth that he came back and said i think this is tv not film so to, to answer your question it really depends on where you are um in term, uh, the brand of of um what the types of material that you're looking for but it's also on a more personal level um you're looking for a point of connection like how what is your way into a world or a story because if you're going to spend 10 years working on something else, so you have to find your way into into that story so even if the brand of the of the um company that you're working for is very specific I still always look for how I can get how how I can spend my time um, making it the best version of what it is
0: I'm thinking specifically about pulse and obviously this move from uh, music videos into kind of scripted narrative. What were you doing to convince the industry or the people that you were going out and hoping to work with that you were you know capable of that, and that you know this was kind of worthwhile going on this venture with you because I imagine that you know it can be quite tricky to kind of change people's minds about what you're able to produce
1: it's really hard <laughs> um, and i you know I think we spent a lot of time. Um, an investment and some of it is just hours in the air and you just keep on knocking on those doors and you keep on having good meetings with with clients and um, so agents continue to send people to you and the better the experience that that person has with you and um, the more likely they are to let you work with other sort of more established um names but in terms of commissioners and and i can't take credit for this this was really the insight and and um, relationship that thomas and lucas had but with gangs of london they recognized the scale of that show was so vast that for young although the, the production infrastructure at pulse actually has always been um very very good because of the amount of content that is produced at the company really i think and in terms of Sort of levels of uh, acting talent it's not something that they could point to experience with or not not enormously and so they partnered and they took the project to to jane at sister and jane offered a backstop a sort of safety valve for um, sky and her endorsement of the project and of thomas and lucas enabled a sort of yeah a comfort for sky as a commissioner
0: yeah absolutely so it's almost about like identifying the gaps in your kind of knowledge and finding people that I guess can plug them um but i feel like as well like it's probably a good thing in some ways that it took so long, in the sense that you know it, it came about in an era where TV suddenly was you know really well regarded, and I think you know was able to be considered prestige TV. Whereas I feel like if it did have happened like ten years ago, it might not have had the reception that it did.
1: No, and I think it was. I mean, I remember going back into Working Title and, and pitching it to Eric, and uh, and him really responding to it, really liking it, and saying it's a great idea. Go and go and find some. Go and find a director. But uh, but it, and it was the process. Of going and finding that director and as you say the sort of the industry evolving that was what sort of pivot it wasn't it it came from talent rather than from a sort of more um, strategic perspective but I I think had it not made strategic sense then we wouldn't have done it but I think I have always been and Thomas and Lucas always were and it's very true at Seesaw as well but very led by um, the brilliant people that we work with the writers and the directors that we work with and enabling them to do what they do best or what they you know what the story dictates um to them and i think it's something that as a sort of principle it's not true across the industry but certainly in a sort of premium prestige space enabling and facilitating brilliant creators is is really what the role certainly what how i see my role being most useful um it's not really it's not about what i think it's about enabling someone to think the best version of what they do or enabling them to to have the sort of resources to um to to tell the best story that they can
0: Absolutely. And and sticking with this idea of kind of enabling and facilitating creatives, I would love to get a sense of how you encourage TV to feel authored. Because from my perspective, you know, even though the showrunner is akin to the director, it does feel like there are many more kind of hands or fingers in the pie to be crude. Um, and, you know, there are lots of people in the writer's room and uh, even with showrunners, you know, there are exec producers. You know, how do you still uh, maintain that kind of singularity to TV?
1: I think it's really, it's a really interesting thing to sort of look at, particularly in light of how television has evolved in the last sort of five years. I think the evolution of authored television means that the writer, the lead writer is really, really important and understanding who that lead writer is and embarking on a, on their creative sort of or getting on board with their creative vision is really really important because if you're fighting for different versions of a TV show it will become a sort of soup you know people talk about how you know everyone can bring wonderful colors but if you put too many colors in in, in it becomes a sort of brown mess. I think that's that's something that we are always alive to as execs. And I think knowing at what point it's helpful to um, lean into the editorial process when, when it's necessary to lean back, ensuring that when you do put a room together, everybody understands the sort of dynamic in that room and they, they're all different. And I think that's something that the more time I spend working, the more I sort of recognise just how there is no one size fits all for any show it always helps to have one person who has a very keen sense of what something is and that can be the exec producer it's not it tends not to be the way that I work like that's as I say like I I have never wanted to write I, I my what I enjoy most is enabling other people to do what they do but I think having being able to support that person whether it's by putting them with one per well, like one person in a writer's room whether it's uh, sort of looking at what the it's a bit like what you were saying sort of the plugging the gaps like what can your lead writer do your creator or your showrunner and where do they need support uh, or what is like what, what are the elements and you sort of breaking down what a show needs and if it's genre if it's you know is it plotting or is it character is it sort of insight is it sort of technical expertise like I think that there are lots of things that people can bring to a room and, and the clearer you are about who is bringing what if you are having multiple voices it makes it much a much more sort of a smoother process and it might and, and the other thing that I think we are doing more of in the UK now is not in know whether a writer is writing on an episode or whether they are in a, a room writer like there's, there's different kind of flavours um, of what you get out of a room and sometimes people are wonderful in a collaborative verbal scenario and some people aren't and it doesn't mean that they have less value it's just sort of knowing where that value is.
0: I I know you just said that you know it's not a one-size-fits-all process but I would love to kind of get a sense of a a typical kind of development um, timeline you know how long do you typically kind of work on a work on a show and you know get the package ready before shopping it around to commissioners and broadcasters and you know what does that process look like?
1: probably easier to sort of take to take the process and then the point at which a commissioner intersects with that process re- really varies depending on what the project is. So we might option a book or, or land on an idea or talk to a writer about an idea and think it's great but need to sort of, sometimes we commission, like certainly at Seesaw, we can commission a script. But sometimes we, so sometimes we do that to find the show, to sort of find the voice of that writer in the show. But there are also instances where we will commission a treatment and then we'll take that treatment to, to the market. And that can dictate whether or not it's who it's going to be, who it's best, who the best partner is for that. Because naturally the different buyers all have slightly different flavors and um what they're looking for in a particular precinct may vary slightly and i think when i first started in the industry it was very you would probably develop one channel or or maybe two and now it's a slightly broader way of looking at material in that what distinguishes the the um, the buyers is slightly more nuanced, so you can take an idea to to more than one place, and that could be at script stage, and still a buyer can feel as though they can implement certain sort of elements that whether that's casting or tone or or, or you know certain sort of dramatic changes as well. I would say that sort of, I mean, I always sort of hesitate to do this. The num like it, all I ever say is it takes ages. <laughs> I how long you think it's going to be, and then at least double it. But you can, with a fair wind, um, you can begin an idea and um, have it on screens um, with five, four or five years. But sometimes it takes much longer and sometimes it's it's faster. Um, so I think if something is really uh, has, a, has a really clear sense of what it is and it happens to chime with what a broadcaster wants and you've only got one writer and they are available all that time and there are no sort of huge obstacles and it doesn't require waiting for cast it can happen more quickly but there are so many variables involved um that sort of saying it takes x amount of time um, is sort of quite academic
0: yeah sure it's a classic how long is a piece of string kind of scenario <laughs> you i mentioned there that you're now at seesaw and i'd have to get a sense of what prompted that change you know were you looking for a specific challenge or you know just uh, new horizons like how did that come about
1: um, I'd been at Pulse for nine years, which is ages on, I mean, it'd been lots of different versions of that company in that time. And I had two babies in in that period as well. But I think I had met Helen Gregory, she was working on the second series of gangs. And so we had, I mean, it was COVID, but we had sort of met across a zoom screen um, and I'd been working with um with Thomas and Lucas for 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 that whole time at Pulse, and really lots of wonderful positive things came of that. But I also it, it had essentially been a startup, and I had sort of been with them with a, with all of the sort of entrepreneurial energy of what a startup is, but. Hadn't ever since working title and, and big talk. It had been a long time since I'd been somewhere that was established. And moving into television and away from film, I was really keen that I work with someone who um, had a, a real heritage of experience. And when Helen um, came to to say that seesaw were looking and that it was only in the sort of TV space, um, it felt like a wonderful opportunity to work with someone who is really, really experienced in um, the editorial process, but also the strategic process and for a company who are incredibly well-regarded and established. And, uh, you know, I feel like I'm sort of repeating myself but there is something about the company's history and I think you know we're evolving now but history in telling true stories that chimed with me and my sensibility in terms of how I how I access story as well.
0: Was there something also quite a- appealing about sort of pushing film maybe to the periphery and being able to focus on like TV and, and really go deep on kind of what that meant?
1: Yeah there's, there was there's certainly I remember having a coffee with Helen and she was saying well, what, what are you interested in telly you know, you've been working in film um, for a long time and, I, and I'd been working on a show for for Netflix and the uh, at Pulse um and I had learned masses amazing exec called Sam Hoyle um worked uh, on it as well and she had come from Broadchurch and there was a sort of um almost academic principle to how she was approaching the story that felt completely completely new to me and it sort of applied completely different principles to that which I was familiar with in film and I was like wow there's there's a whole editorial sort of technical craft process that I don't know but I'm familiar with lots of it I can sort of jump in it's a bit like having learned one language you can learn another in a different way a challenge there and an opportunity to expand my skill set that I was interested in before Helen came and spoke to me. But the, the sort of the muscles that you have to flex to Ensure that a series story works in a different way to, to the way that a movie is structured was really interesting to me. And because of the sort of evolution of the TV industry, it wasn't at the expense of working with people who are any less creatively inspiring. I think, you know, 10 years ago, the opportunity to work in television felt very different. Whereas now there was a, there was a sort of dialogue between the two mediums.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The connections aren't wasted. You know, the relationships still very much exist. I'd love to, you know, dig in a little bit more into that idea of the editorial process behind TV and how you test whether a story, you know, has legs and there is enough kind of, you know, meat on the bone to kind of hold uh, an audience's attention across multiple episodes. Like, what are you doing to investigate that?
1: Well, it's, I mean, it's something that Helen and I spend a lot of time talking about. I think because, partly because of my sort of background in film, I am always very, um, I tend to get very excited about worlds or about specific characters. And she is always pushing to find the, and what is the sort of, what is that engine? It's got to last longer than, obviously, it's sort of a story engine that's got to sort of extrapolate across way more than 90 minutes, way, you know, and particularly in returning series, which is what I work. Um, you're looking for something that has um, so much sort of voltage that it can it can really run for a long time. So that can it can come from character if there is a sort of central conflict to that character, that feels as though it can. With returning series, particularly, it's sort of it's often a sort of conflict that repeats. I talk quite a lot about patterning in characters and how that sort of um, I talk to writers a lot about the pathology of a character and often feel as though the role of a of a creative exec is often akin to that of a therapist. You're sort of like how are you you know what's wrong with this character what is their wound how are they going to keep on making the same mistake and whilst also giving the audience the satisfaction of allowing your central character to grow and to change but in the way that in film you would be looking for a really wholesale change from where your character your know, the sort of inciting incident of your character and where they where their resolution in returning series you it's, it's a different um it has there's a sort of different muscle that you are using because that central character is a place of safety and constant and it's a place of safety um, and consistency and um, so if you're turning up week on week you don't want to suddenly be faced with a completely different version of who that because they've done they've been through this sort of wonderful lesson overcome lots of obstacles and if they suddenly become a fully realized individual there's not less not a lot to sort of keep you coming back again for for multiple series. So I think that that's something that I'm always looking for and and how, and it's why it tends to be why those sort of genre precincts work very well, whether that's sort of espionage in the way that we've done with Slow Horses or whether it's um, legal or criminal or thrillers. Like thrillers don't really return very naturally. So it's sort of you're looking for a tone or a character that that can return for, for multiple seasons.
0: Yeah, River Cartwright is a great example of someone that keeps kind of uh, cutting open old wounds or won't let go of the idea that he's a, a great spy. <laughs>
1: exactly. And it, and I think that's the thing with, with Returning Series. I remember um, reading John York on this um, and, and I always recommend it to anyone who hasn't Into the Woods. Uh, it's probably the only screenwriting book that I return to. He talks about how sort of amnesia is a, is a wonderful thing in series characters because if, if you if, if they forget the lesson that they learned in the last series that's fine so it has to be you know it can't be so big a lesson it can't be so much a trauma that it feels as though it's it undermines the sort of build that you've you've and the sort of investment that an audience has made but if it's someone who's just got a massive chip on their shoulder that that works really well
0: and I'd love to know as well like obviously you know writers come to you with ideas that they want to work on but you know production companies often source those ideas themselves and so I'd love to know where you look for kind of inspiration or the unlikely story that might become the next project
1: I don't think they're unique in this but but, you know books always plays um, podcasts but it can be um, and I think this is something that has evolved as I have learned more in the industry it's sort of looking at how you can take one element of something that you have read or seen or an article that you have read actually with with the project that I mentioned the, the Netflix project it was an art. I read an article about drug routes being used um, to traffic other illicit sort of materials and that was the beginning point for, uh, for a show and so it's sort of it's it it tends to be Something sparks something, you know. Like, or, or we will be, you know. Something that we say at, at CSO all the time is that I think everybody that works there has a real curiosity about the world. It's not a sort of. What we look for at Seesaw is, sort of, yes, it's premium, sort of bold, engaging drama, but it's also we use the word impactful quite a lot. So it's yes, it's saying something about the world, but it's not necessarily in a kind of earnest way. It's like how can how can we be part of a conversation that is um happening already, and like what what is the sort of lens on that conversation that is interesting, or how can a character who we haven't seen before enable us to sort of explore something in a new way? And I think you know it's, it's a very specific example, but even even with something like Slow Horses, which is a series of of books. And so there was lots of build from that. But Will is a comedy writer. Um, so he was bringing a different voice to that, to a, to a genre that has you know, historically been quite austere and uh, not funny. Uh, and, and seeing a crumpled sort of spy who's not great at his job or not great at lots of bits of the job that you would normally associate with a spy. Um, felt like a new way into what is otherwise a very familiar genre precinct um, and it just meant that you just recalibrated a couple of the elements in it and it, it offered something fresh.
0: Yeah, exactly. That, that genre is so used to being glamorous um, that it definitely feels new. We've, we've talked about how the industry has evolved, you know, over the past, you know, five, ten years. And I'd love to get a sense from you of, of how development has changed since you started doing it. Like, is the way that we, you know, crucially just kind of work out what a story is and if it's working, is that still the same? Like the bones of the work that you do or because you're doing it for different formats and different audiences and maybe even different kind of lengths of time? Like,
1: is it a different job to when you began? the principles of story i think remain the same in that i remember being told very early on like, oh you know, if you've read aristotle's poetics you you don't need to ever read another um book about screenwriting again and that's there's a sort of kind of rarefied kind of slightly pretentious um truth to that but i do think that we continue to learn and the more that we understand about who people are and the type of stories that are engaging for audiences and I think audiences demands have definitely changed and so that has shaped the development process maybe and how we how we um, prepare something for market but in terms of when you are responding to a script and what is what connects with an audience I think that you know we we understand story from when we are tiny and we because we're read stories and we so we understand the sort of form of it and I often talk about how I respond very instinctively to story, but that instinct isn't a sort of third eye sense. It's, it's it's knowledge, it's experience, it's skills, it's having read multiple stories. And, you know, I talked about loving reading when I was young. I think that it's all sort of baked into what you, how you understand and how you editorially approach the development process. But in terms of what audiences respond to on screen and how fast things have to move how much story series use that's I think that one of the lessons that I really was a very sort of early one moving from film to television was that just that you can make an idea in film last 90 minutes like if it's explored by a filmmaker who really understands that and that's can be a very very satisfying experience on television though that it's a different people receive that differently and Series sort of monsters story and I, I certainly was like oh wow we that's not enough. like an inciting incident doesn't last ninety minutes in in telly uh, whereas you can kind of get away with, sometimes with with the right filmmaker you can get away with that in in film so I think the the process of like we I'm also I think because audiences are more. TV and generally cine literate the expectations are different so you again you you have to be much more robust with your storytelling and I promise um, all sorts of things in that first episode in order to keep them for the second and so I think that there are some structural things that have had to change because of the way that we consume TV now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like even the fact that we sit down knowing that we we might watch a whole series kind of means that we're sort of ready to be fed a lot rather than you know just knowing that we're in the game for ninety minutes.
1: We also don't stick around in like we are much our sort of and I hold myself um, in this as well. But you don't have very long to capture an audience in a way that maybe in in the past you because it was what was on at nine o'clock just you what you watch but because there is now such a saturation of material and content across multiple platforms making someone want to continue to watch multiple episodes let alone multiple series is one of the greatest challenges I think in telly
0: and this might apply to the next question but I'd love to know what frustrates you most about the film or television industry right now or something that you would you would like to see kind of improved in the way that we work in the next couple of years
1: this is a sort of more, more sort of it, it's much broader, really. I'd like I'd like to see bravery and in, um, in storytelling, but also beyond that. But I think it's part of it. Different flavors of people who are making decisions. Um, so it's not just people who are Oxbridge educated and white and middle class who are determining whether or not something ends up on screen. And it's definitely changing. Um, but i still think that there is a kind of conservatism and a kind of a reliance on what has worked before or indeed what hasn't worked and therefore which should not be repeated but i don't i don't know if that's new i think that might be you know that's something that has been around for a really long time in the sort of the endless um, back and forth between commissioners and, and indie producers but i think that certainly the the way that the industry is accessed um, by whether that's talent or or working on on the development side and on the editorial side or making it more accessible to people who maybe didn't babysit for Paul Greengrass you know how 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 can we make it so that it feels more inclusive um, as an industry is that bravery
0: in terms of content or form or both both
1: um I'm uh, I know I'm quite conservative in terms of form, so I feel like it would be a sort of pop calling the kettle black a little bit. I'm quite classical in the way that I approach story, um, but I love watching things that aren't, and I love watching things that, that break the rules, and um, and I think audiences are hungry for that as well. So finding and supporting talent that it sort of has, it has a bravery about their about their approach. The way that I tend to look at things is that the story has to work in a classical way, and then you can fuck it up. Bit like sort of, you know, knowing how to paint and then just doing a red box. Like, you can't, you sort of, the, the one doesn't forget the other unless you know how to do it um, in the straight way. So, it's not enough to just have lots of bells and whistles. You have to have story as well.
0: And what excites you most about the industry right now?
1: It's sort of maybe what also depresses me as well. So in like, I think there are some really brave, brilliant people who are doing things that uh, haven't been done before. Um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And it's really glorious to sort of celebrate and see that and take some chances on on newer voices. I think that's something that I'm starting to see more in the last sort of 18 months, two years, um, where a newer writer can get a series commission in a way that five years ago, that would never have happened.
0: Yeah, I have to say in that way, TV definitely feels more democratic because, as you say, you can kind of come into a writer's room and, you know, not even be asked to write an entire episode, but definitely, like, prove yourself in a way that you probably just can't with film in the sense that you would have to have written the whole script and, you know... Yeah, I, I definitely feel like that is, you know, in TV's uh, benefit and favour.
1: And also knowing what you, like, there are different there are different offerings across your career that you may be able to. I was speaking to a writer the other day who had been in a couple of rooms, hadn't written episodes, but had been part of the room and had sort of seen how story was built across a series. And just that experience is something that you might not have had five years ago. And I think some of that, you know, it sort of comes from America, um, but But it's also something that um, I think we are getting better at sort of finding ways of doing in the UK as well.
0: This might be a slightly superfluous question, um, because you mentioned Paul Greengrass and the advice that he gave you that you still return to. But I would love to know if there is something else that you perhaps think has steered your course or, you know, a mantra that you kind of come back to on difficult days.
1: There's something that I do come back to, um, both in terms of the work that I produce, but also the sort of way in which I approach my professional life, and that's sort of with an emotional generosity. So I'm looking at how can we be emotionally generous to our audience when they are spending, they're investing their time in in a story that we are telling. What can we give them? How can we work to excite and entertain them? But in sort of day to day of like you know working in an office and being with other people, how can we? bring that generosity to our colleagues and to the writers that we work with and I think that sort of spirit of collaboration and sharing and not being about the self and instead it's sort of being about a collective experience is something that is it's why I like working in this industry um, I think it has maybe in the past been dominated by very sort of singular um, egotistical expressions of um, singularity but I'm I I think, I hope, it's starting to, to move um, toward a more generous way. And that's not to say that a singular vision isn't a wonderful thing to support, but there are ways of having a singular vision whilst also being um, collaborative in, in the process as well. I really love that answer.
0: And finally, I'd love to know if there's a film or indeed television series by a woman director or showrunner that you would like to recommend today.
1: I thought about this one because there's loads. Uh, I, one of the things that that I work on a lot at Seesaw um, are very muscular stories, which have a real sort of energy and a genre component and a sort of propulsive nature. And I think it's you know it's true to an extent of, of gangs as well. And I think I often find myself referring back to uh, Catherine Bigelow and The Hurt Locker very specifically. And I think so often women directors are given stories about women or about a sort of domestic environment or like and they don't necessarily have the sort of muscularity of voice and storytelling and so I think she um and that film particularly um has a a sort of a remarkable energy to it and that I think had it been told by anyone different um it it might have landed in a in a quite a sort of aggressive way and it doesn't i think there's a real sort of a real generosity to that to that film
0: absolutely i haven't watched it in a really long time so it's a good reminder to revisit it moss thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been a real treat to speak with you today i really appreciate the time for listening to this episode of best girl grip if you liked what you heard please do rate review and subscribe spread the good word etc if you're interested in other conversations like this look for my episodes with sam Jolie, katie sinclair dion farrell and rose garnett in the meantime have a great week and i'll be back next friday with a brand new episode